0: CR101radio.com podcasts and more welcome to out of the question a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view your co-hosts are andrea schwartz a teacher and mentor and pastor charles roberts
1: Today's discussion might surprise some of our listeners, but I believe it's an important one for the Christian. Between media and woke culture in general, those who confess Christ as their savior are often put on the defensive as being negative, judgmental, and haters. What follows, even for the strongest follower of Christ, is the temptation to back down, shut up, and not be controversial. However, the Bible is clear in many places that love and hate both are words that require a subject and an object. Someone has to love or hate. And likewise, someone or something has to be the recipient of love or hate. So today's question is, is it ever correct for Christians to hate or stated another way, what's wrong about loving what God hates? What do you think, Charles?
0: Well, what's wrong with loving what God hates is that uh, he warns us not to do that. And if God, well, I guess, for, first of all, it's a, it's a major hurdle for um, the modern evangelical mind to get over that God actually hates anything. So that, that's the first thing. And how would we know if God hates something? Well. We go to his word, of course, and um, we have several things, I think, that we can share in that regard. And I'll start off with um, Psalm 11, verse 5, which says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So right there, and, and, you know, there have been efforts to explain that away. Well, it doesn't really mean hate. It means he uh, he, uh, strongly dislikes, (laughs) you know. Right, right. So that I mean and the word ash that means nothing of the sort. It means hate just like we would use the term so.
1: and I think it flies in the face of this bizarre concept that says, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner because right there in that verse, God says he hates the sin and the sinner
0: that's um that thing that thing is you know, loving the the sinner but hating the sin of course, has no biblical basis whatsoever, as you just pointed out. And that one verse, if nothing else, is is proof of it, but there are many others. But that's the sort of theological, sentimental nonsense that, you know, comes out of Bible camps and evangelistic crusades and people who have, you know, a a lot more uh, pietistic sentiment than they do uh, familiar with what God's word actually says. And it actually, in some way, goes back to an early, early Christian heresy, which um, I believe was Marcion, who argued that uh, the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is this mean, angry fellow. And uh, Jesus, of course, is the God of love and peace and uh, hippiedom and all that kind of thing. When, thankfully, the early church recognized that this is totally contrary to the teachings of Scripture. God is one. He's not different from one testament to the other. Uh, even though human sentiments may change. Right. So, yeah, the idea of loving the, the sinner but hating the sin, that has no basis whatsoever in Scripture.
1: But it has a basis in trying to be nicer than God or trying to be nicer than Jesus. Because if you go back to a time in America where there was much more of a Christian consensus You couldn't have these kinds of difficult situations or discussions because the general consensus would be, of course, that's wrong. Of course, that's absurd. Of course, that's ridiculous. But because the religion has changed, now there are different definitions of holiness and sin and heresy. So, for example, let's take heresy. You mentioned uh, an ancient heresy. Well, we have Heretics today. How do you know who they are? They're the people who are censored on social media. Obviously, they have committed a heresy. They have committed a sin so grievous that they are to be shunned and they are to be obliterated. In other words, it's not like they just get reproved, they go away. So lest anybody thinks that those who hold to a different religious view don't hate they're missing the idea that there is never going to be a neutral position.
0: And that's uh, an apt comparison with the legitimate concern for theological heresy, which should be confounded and uh, rebuked. But you see, we've got two different theocratic orders. There's the genuine uh, rule of God through his law, through his word, through his son. And then we have the uh, challenging counterfeit, that of the state in our time. And so the state, as you just indicated, seeks to quash what it considers heresy and blasphemy against its the reality that it's trying to portray. And I think one reason that many Christians today, and this has been a, this way for a while, not just with the rise of uh, modern worship praise type music, but it goes all the way back even to earlier than that when uh Again, to use the term, it was more sentiment that uh, predominated in the popular hymnody of the day rather than, say, for example, singing the psalms. And by the way, I'm not an exclusive psalm singer, but uh, we, we should sing the psalms and sing them regularly. And one of those psalms, if, if any of our listeners are familiar with the Trinity Hymnal, and I guess I'll have to say the Red Trinity Hymnal, uh, and I'm pretty sure that this, this hymn was in the original It is uh, page or hymn 37 in the Red Trinity Hymnal, and it's based on Psalm 139. And just listen to this fourth stanza. Don't worry, I'm not going to try to sing it.
1: Okay, good. Thanks.
0: (laughs) The wicked thou wilt surely slay. From me let sinners turn away. They speak against the name divine. I count God's enemies as mine. And that is set to certain type of wording, but it is literally word from word from Psalm 137. So uh, the the modern evangelical type church music is based more on sentiment and not on theology, and I dare say you could probably travel the land and go into different churches every Sunday, and you would rarely hear Psalm 137 sung in any form.
1: So part of the root cause of being unable to to maneuver through the kinds of accusations that are thrown at Christians has to do with this combination of pietism, not piety, but pietism, this idea of personal holiness in my head, it's never going to have an application someplace else. And then of course, antinomianism, which basically says, all we have to do is love Jesus But forget that he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So don't you think that why people feel like they don't want to get in conversations is because they're not equipped?
0: Yes. I mean, they may be equipped, however, in a way that maybe they uh, implicitly know is contrary to God's teaching. Um, But in, in in terms of discussing and dialoguing about these things, you know, somebody's right and somebody's wrong, <laughs> you know, and either we take to heart the words that God himself set forth in the psalm I referred to, I think I said Psalm 137 there, it should be Psalm 139, which that hymn uh, was based, but um and in Psalm 139, verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That's where the wording in that hymn comes from. And uh, I don't know what, uh, other than to uh, gin up the ancient Marcionite heresy, uh, I don't know what modern Christians do with those kind of verses, except turn away from them or say, you know what? We need to listen to what Jesus said, and that is if we're going to show our love for him. We should obey his commandments,
1: Right. And Psalm 139 is a very popular psalm until you get to that part.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right.
1: It's the part, it, you know, we could call that the pro-life psalm. So this goes back to the idea that we are more willing to offend God than we are to offend other people. And this idea that Christians should never hate. Well, let's think about that. Should we hate Satan? Should we hate demons? Should we hate those who kill other people for gain and for the idea of domination? Let's put it this way. The Bible is not illogical. It's very logical. The problem is when you're trying to be accepted amongst illogical people.
0: You know, one of the constant challenges we all face is the issue of idolatry. And most people will hear that and think, well, you know, I don't have any statues of pagan deities or modern deities in my office or room, so I'm not an idolater. But, you know, the, the thing that continually challenges the absolute authority and first place of God in our lives, the thing or those things are what we have to be on guard, I guess. And, and none, of us, none of us are uh, immune to that problem. And so when we come to something like this that we're talking about, is is it ever right to hate? Should Christians hate things? Uh, is, Is it okay to say that God hates? Well, obviously it is because he says so in his word. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, if this seems repugnant to me, if I can read, for example, in Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, these six things the Lord hates, yes, even seven are an abomination to Him, And it makes me uncomfortable or I've I've got to somehow get away from that, then I, we've got to ask why. What is it that is presenting itself as such that God's word in any form would make me uncomfortable? I, I know I'm not talking about the stories of, say, you know, stories of rape and killing and, and these sort of things that we do have in some passages in, in the Bible. Uh, but I mean, in terms of what God exhorts us to do and what his word tells us to do in terms of these things, uh, I remember... Some years ago, it was a cassette tape catalog, that's how long ago it was, and there was a list of sermons by somebody, I don't remember who, but there was a sermon, I never got the tape, but I always wished I had, and listened to it, or if I hadn't done that, I, I thought about maybe putting this title out on a, uh, the sign of a church where I was pastor at the time, and the title was this, Be Concerned, God May Hate You, <laughs> And that was, you know, during the the rise of people like um, Robert Shuler, you know, whose big sign-on thing was, you know, "Be happy, God loves you." Right kind of
1: thing. So you quoted uh, Pro or you referenced Proverbs six sixteen through nineteen. I'd like to read it because I was going to bring it up, but you beat me to it. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to Him. Now let's just get our head around abomination. It's not like. Something that's a little bit distasteful, something that's abominable or an abomination. I don't think you can get much worse than that. Right. All right. And these are these seven things a proud look. Wow, a proud look's an abomination, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief a false witness that speaketh lies and he that sows discord among believers. How many people Charles do you think take inventory in their lives to answer the question are you God's enemy?
0: Yeah, and that and that on one level this gets to I think what we might consider to be a legitimate or biblically based uh, piety and again, to distinguish it from pietism, because, you know, we, we hear these words or read oh. them in Proverbs six. And yes, there's a personal level. There's a question about my inner life and my personal relationship to our Lord God and how that you, am I, am I guilty of lying, of being haughty and conceited, um, of devising wicked plans, whatever those may be. So yes, we do need to apply that to our personal lives and, and recognize it. But you see, Scripture also recognizes that there, and I hate to use this term, but I think it's it's a biblical case for it. There is systemic evil, and it's the evil that anyone who is not obeying God's law will be involved in, in terms of politics and government and education and all the rest of it. So yes, we should be considering these things, how it applies to us personally, but why would we ever think that our local school board or our county council or our state government or whatever would not have to be considered uh, when we analyze these things.
1: Exactly. See, the Bible tells us that God is love. However, today that's been changed to mean love is God. So however I define love, then it thereby is godly. So by defining God in terms of love rather than the other way around, God then becomes this evolutionary morphing God, as you said, that goes from the meaning of the Old Testament to the person who accepts everyone except those (laughs) who follow God's law. So it's a very interesting turnaround, but it's just kind of what Dr. Rushduni talks about in his introduction to Institutes You know, while the culture is going through a change of religion, everybody's told to be tolerant. Everybody's told to be accepting until that change takes place. And now the prevailing religious view seeks to suppress, in this case, and in our day, the Christian worldview.
0: Yeah. And I'd like to share something with you and our listeners that I think is uh, it came across one of my social media feeds as an amazing, astounding example of the problem associated with this very issue. And I'm going to be purposely vague about the, the context, other than to say it's between an individual who purports to be a gay Christian, a homosexual Christian, and a popular pastor, popular within his own regional circles, I guess I'll say. And this is a discussion, an online discussion they were having. It's very brief. Let me just share this with you. Uh, the person who considered themselves a, a gay Christian says, I'm really tired of wishy-washy reflections that are fancy, quote, love the sinner, hate the sin speak. And the pastor responds, well, what's the alternative? If, if everyone sins, what to do if not love? And, and notice the response from the homosexual. He says, well, maybe we should start with not saying I'm sinning by being queer. The pastor says, well, that was not the point, not even part of the point of my post. The response, well, how else am I supposed to take the continued mention of, quote, disagreement and differing beliefs about LGBTQ people? And the last two posts, that mutual love and compassion can and should coexist with differing beliefs. It's the true definition of tolerance. And he says, and I'm saying it is not love for you to, quote, believe my sexuality is wrong. So this this is a a, a a no win thing. I mean, if if we do not abide by what God tells us in His Word about what is right or wrong and the things indeed that He hates, then we have no defense against evil. We have no way of defending ourselves, uh, either culturally, personally, in terms of our families, against the onslaught of a rigid, unbending orthodoxy of evil.
1: Right. So. I can hear people who would agree with us mostly and even critics saying, okay, so you're now advocating that believers in Jesus Christ should hate what he, the second person of the Trinity, hates. Well, how does that comport with loving your enemy? And for a lot of people, they get tongue-tied. They don't know what to say. So I would say, how do we as Christians apply godly hatred to an enemy of God? And notice I use the adjective godly hatred as opposed to ungodly hatred. Does it mean that we are free to violate God's law in dealing with those we should hate? No, because the Bible tells us to do good unto all men, especially unto those of the household of faith. So since we've been told that love is the fulfilling of the law, we're not free to smile at someone and say, God bless you. I hope you're happy in your sexual deviation. No, we have to take the courageous step that says, I want to warn you of eternal damnation because the Bible is clear of all those who will not be in the kingdom of God. So how is it loving someone to see them turn right, they're going to go off a cliff, but you smile and wave because you don't want to offend them?
0: Well, of course, it's not from the standpoint of God's word, but modern man doesn't think in terms of that word. He thinks in terms of his own, and part of the problem that we face today with the eradication of any uh, understanding of the biblical foundations of truth, or even just the logical understanding of truth. You know, I, I think uh, Francis Schaeffer was one who brought this up often in his writings, uh, standing on the shoulders of a few other people, uh, such as Dr. Rashtuni, for example, that, you know, at one time you could tell someone to be a good boy or be a good girl, and they had some knowledge and understanding of what that meant. Uh, now nobody w- knows what that means anymore. And he made the point, again, he wasn't the first to do so, but part of that is a failure to even remotely think logically, where uh, something cannot be and not be at the same time. If something is green, it can't at the same time be purple. It's either one or the other. And so th- it's the same with this. You know, there's either a way, a path of righteousness and life, or there's a path that leads away from those things. And so we know, if the statistics are allowed to speak for themselves, that people who pursue lifestyles that are contrary to what God says, here is the way of life, here is the way of righteousness and living that pleases me, those who oppose that, who go off the opposite direction, their lives bear the marks of those things in terms of their health, in terms of their longevity. And there's no denying those statistics. You've either got to just, you know, like we've been talking about, or I'm saying, throw off any logic at all where, uh, uh, you know, you could plant an acorn in the ground and it could sprout up and become an elephant uh, <laughs> to where, you, you know, you you, you massage the t- statistics like we've seen in the past couple of years with the whole COVID business. So um, things are made to appear than what they're not. And uh, it is a really frightening thing on some level. To recognize that those who are in rebellion against God pursue that that standard that leads ultimately to death.
1: Indeed, you know you talked about what's happening in the culture. This exchange that you saw um, between those two people. Well, this past week, and we're in March of 2022. A prominent conservative podcaster revealed to the world that he and his husband were going to have two children and went through great detail describing how they did this, you know, getting egg donors and, and, you know, making sure that the best they could tell this person looked good. This person was smart. So we'll pick her and then having to find surrogates And he was being interviewed and it was just like, this is just so wonderful. And all these people are congratulating him. He said, okay, so conservative homosexuals are Trojan horses because they're trying to get people to respond to being conservative more than being biblical. Okay, I sort of expect that. So I've never put a lot of credence into quoting this person or any other conservatives who identify themselves as homosexual, bisexual, or whatever. I know at that point to say, whatever's being said isn't the real agenda there. So I don't listen, but that doesn't mean others don't. What was particularly disconcerting is having a prominent female evangelical who has her own audience and does her own podcast, Go on about her reaction to this. And it was like, has she made it very clear because this man is a colleague of hers. And she said that she, you know, respects him, but he knows what she believes and she has told him that. Okay. So it wasn't as far as maybe I would say publicly, but then she said, but I did tell him he's going to make a great dad. And I'm like, what? You just said your belief, and if we're going to base it on scripture, God is very definite about the abomination of homosexuality. And if you're going by biblical definitions, what that man has with another man is not a marriage and the unnatural way that they are going to procure it. One person who's giving a commentary basically said they bought concubines to do this work for them. We're not talking about wives they're going to take care of and goodness knows what it's going to be like for these children, but to go through everything about saying that she has a belief in the Bible, but then said, he's going to be a great dad. I, I don't even know if I can listen to her anymore.
0: My advice would be not to.
1: <laughs> well, I'm saying I usually try to listen to see what people are saying But this is the representation of a biblical world and life view. What you're doing is wrong. It's an abomination to the Lord. It'll keep you out of the kingdom, but you're going to be a great dad.
0: You know, it reminds me of a popular saying that I first read about. Um, I think I was probably a little bit too young to have been aware of it at the time. But in uh, in the early 60s and late 50s of what was called the nuclear arms race, when the world Probably maybe not too much different than now, but uh, it seemed like a far worse threat than, to me at least, than it does now. The world was really on the brink of nuclear uh, disaster between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so there was a peace movement, an anti-nuclear movement, uh, anti-disarmament movement, and you had prominent people who were on board with that. And um, the the British philosopher Bertrand Russell was part of that, and he uh, quoted, I, I think Einstein may have said it first, but it was this. Remember your humanity and forget the rest. So, in other words, in the face of nuclear annihilation, let's put aside all differences and just remember we're all human beings and we got to love each other and live together. That sounds really noble, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. I think there's something like that behind this statement by this prominent evangelical podcaster. It's like, okay, you know, I, I know God's word. even I assume she knows, for example, in Proverbs 29, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Well, even if she was aware of that, just like, well, you know, we all got to live together. And so let's just here I'll remember our humanity. You'll be a great dad. Yeah. Well, part of the problem with that, as you have so well said, and what has led us to the to the brink of moral and cultural annihilation, is that attitude, especially among people who God would count on to raise the standard of his justice and his righteousness. So I think as we move through time until that time when the Lord by his grace and providence causes the wicked to be put aside and for the flourishing of his kingdom message to dominate this world, which we look forward to, then we must be willing uh, to recognize that we too will be looked upon as an abomination to those who hate God's law.
1: And I would add to that, which I think what you said was true, is that God is a jealous God. He doesn't like to share. He doesn't share well, you might say, in the modern lingo. And in the first two commandments, he makes it very clear that we're to have no other gods and no other idols. So if we're looking to be accepted, if we're looking to have a peaceful life that won't you know, generate a lot of uh, uh, antagonism toward us, then we have to expect, if we're going to read the scriptures properly, that now we've put ourselves in the bullseye. And the easy believism that said, well, I accepted God into my heart. He now owes me. Of course, I owe him nothing at this point because I said I accepted him and apparently that's all he wanted from me. It devalues the incarnation and the crucifixion to blink at sin and act like it's not offensive. It should be personally offensive if we're in Christ and it's offensive to our King, you know, in diplomatic circles, if, you know, the head of one country goes to another place and somebody spits on him, that's a, um, you know, diplomatic, You know, wow, we've got to deal with this. This is terrible. Please accept our apologies and this person will be punished. But we do it to God all the time and act like he's a big boy. He should be able to take it.
0: I think God's response to that is to say, okay, then this is what you get when you spit in my face, when you disregard my law. Uh, you, You come to the point where we find ourselves today. Uh, you know, we didn't just wake up last week and face the challenges we face today, where supposedly someone who will be uh, appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States can't honestly de- de- define what a woman is. Um, we, we didn't just get there overnight. It, you, no. you can trace it back step by step. That leads eventually to the spot. But well, um, what,
1: let me just say this. What yeah. she's really saying is I'll decide when the time comes. Yes, that's what she's really saying. And the fact that we, um, you know, did all these funny things, you know, is it raining outside? I don't know. I'm not a meteorologist. Um, do I have a boy or a girl? I don't know. You know, the obstetrician saying I'm not a biologist. Yeah, that's all funny. But what it's really pointing to is the idea that we have to be polite to people who blaspheme. To people who, um, are promoting something of among those, the seven things that the Lord hates. You know, when going back to the example I gave about that couple about how they love each other and these two men, this is a lying tongue and they're promoting evil. They're promoting evil on their own children or who, what will be called their children. But really, if you look at that arrangement, you have two men, you have a woman who donated her eggs, and two surrogates. So there are five people involved in this. What is going to be the life of the children that are brought into this situation? Really and truly, we're going to say they're going to have a great family life by whose standard?
0: Well, in the standard of some Horrific dystopian worlds, say, for example, like what we have in the Brave New World novel, uh, where humanity has basically been uh, drained and you have this sort of unimaginably strange, bizarre existence. And that's part of the problem. The more and more we have examples of, of what you just described, you know, of, of a sodomite couple and the, the, uh, the surrogate mothers and all the rest of it, is that step by step, it completely waters down and eventually stamps out any remnants of a biblical standard among the people who give themselves over to it and the people who tolerate it. So, you know, in terms of us as followers of Jesus and lovers of God's law, ourselves, our listeners, you know, I think that raises uh, a couple of questions. And and let me just throw this out at you because I'd be interested in, in your thoughts about it. So if Jesus tells us that we show that we love him by obeying his commandments. And so, as, as I think uh, Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. Then, what does it mean then? How, how do we avoid promoting evil? How do we avoid helping those who would destroy? I mean, maybe the example you gave would be a good place to start. What, what would a godly Christian woman who had a, a friend who was a man who turned out to be in the situation you just described? What, what should have been a proper course of action for her?
1: Well, let me start off by saying I wouldn't make a public declaration. In other words, if she really cares about this person, her conversations should be with that person. For whatever reason, she felt it necessary to do a quick, I'm going to get online here and tell you about, you know, how I talk to this person. We've got to stop falling into the trap. Of being acceptable to media. If you care about someone and you really care that the things that this person is doing is going to mean eternity in hell. First of all, you have to believe that. If you don't believe that, then it's understandable why you won't challenge the person, but you would do it privately. You wouldn't do it in a public forum so that now everybody else can weigh in on this, that or the other thing. And you would tell him the truth. But you would never consider that you could put good attached to his fatherhood, because why would we call it good if the Bible calls it an abomination? And so that's how I approach it. In other words, I'm not looking for media accolades. I'm not looking for people to say, oh, yeah, wow, you really zung that person. Now, if I'm going to take the time to talk to someone, I'm going to warn that person and and hope that God visits them with their eyes open and their ears, you know, are open. You know, not everybody who is transsexual, transgender, homosexual, lesbian are beyond God's redemption. But how are they going to know the truth unless those people who bear the name of Christ will share that with them? I don't know if that answered your question.
0: No, I think it did, and the the challenge that we face then is how we share that information and remain firmly committed to what God's law tells us and what His truth tells us, um, but at the same time express that concern. And I think this is where you know the the love and compassion part comes in. But the problem is that you know we we've all been sort of brainwashed into accepting Oprah Winfrey Winfrey's version of love, or, or you know whoever else. I'm, I'm not picking on her, but we have this sort of sentimental mushy idea about what constitutes love and telling people the truth. Um, well, that's your truth, you know, kind of thing is often the response, but, you know, I think there's another aspect of this that it's, it's part of the example that you chose and that this podcaster um, and I, I know of at least one or two other highly popular TV commentators uh, who are friends with the, case of the two uh, the homosexual couple you referred to uh, who have given this a a lot of publicity and so that raises a a question then about well are are we abating abetting those excuse me who are god's enemies by giving them that kind of platform
1: exactly and one thing i've learned maybe i've never actually sat in your church and heard you preach so i'm not including you in this but I've noticed in some churches that are antinomian and pietistic, which yours is not, but that are oftentimes what they're saying isn't the real agenda. You have to listen to the asides. You have to listen to the things they're slipping in. And, and if you have ears to hear, you go, that doesn't seem right. Well, here you people are watching conservative news, conservative programs. And they think like, yeah, we're going to have to get our side in and gee, the current administration in Washington DC is so terrible. But then as this kind of side feel good piece of information, we hear about this. Maybe that's the real agenda. Maybe the target is Christianity. Maybe the target is the Bible. And that's why they, you know, sweeten it up to make it look so normal. I mean, I'm not suggesting anybody watch the announcement of this man, but he was so smug on how wonderful what was going on and about, and he really appreciated all the people who were saying, okay, those babies haven't arrived yet, live your life because those 2 a.m. feedings are going to be a bear. I mean, it was normalizing something which the Lord hates on so many different levels.
0: And, you know, you mentioned a moment ago about the concern that we might have for someone, especially someone known to us about their eternal destiny, uh, which would be hell and damnation for those who are not truly saved and uh, chosen for salvation. But, you know, there's another side to that as well. And that is the hell and damnation that society itself um, has to deal with, where this type of stuff is promoted and begins to flourish. You know th- this, this is this is another thing that we're on the edge of seeing completely dominate what used to be a biblically based culture, which is what American culture used to be or at least in the individual states. And so you're right, I think that's been the target all along and Satan is an evil deceiver and very cunning. And so in some ways that question that was asked at the very beginning is the one that echoes down through the millennia. Did God really say that? And of course the implication is, yeah, but you know, or no, no, he didn't because that would, that would be unkind. That would be mean. Now, another area that I think this becomes really challenging, you know, we mentioned the example of, okay, you're giving publicity to these people, but what about when we come to politics? You know, this is the place where a lot of people begin to divide when you've got elections and you've got candidate A and candidate B and we have to face the issue of, well, do we support the lesser of two evils? Well, I don't know where, and I'm not going to address that issue head on, but I will say God is very clear about those who he says are his enemies and what their characteristics are. So I think this is another area where we're reaping the, uh, the results of denying what God has told us and that, okay, you want to choose that particular person to be your governor, your mayor, your town councilor, your president, whatever it is, then you will deal with the consequences of someone who does not honor my, my law and my word as the ultimate truth.
1: Right. You know, those voter guides that, you know, this is how they stand on these issues. We should probably see how the people fare up in terms of those seven things the Lord hates, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And say, that's how we're going to decide because the choosing the lesser of two evils implies there's two choices. There are more than two choices in that case. We're told to come out from among them. So get to a point where you're raising up people who you can vote for if our elections still happen and are in any way to have any kind of integrity, but that what we're going to do is obey God on a small scale first and then have communities where those who lead don't fall into the category of things and people that God hates. Because, you see, you talked about hell and damnation. Um, hell and damnation have been mocked. You know, you have the little red devil with his pitchfork or things like that. How many people really believe in hell and damnation as a real thing and understand that when we're being saved from the wrath, it's the wrath of God? No one is ever saved from the wrath of Satan. It's the wrath of God. And so we've got to get on this firm footing and then we'll be as bold as we're called to be. I mean, Jesus knew when he was talking to the Pharisees that they were going to kill him, but he didn't back down and try to make alliances and try to see if they could all get
0: along. And that's why uh, you probably won't see on the today's sermon sign in front of any church, be concerned. God may hate you. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes, indeed.
1: Anyway, I hope we've given people things to think about and, As always, the first person you have to make sure you can reach is yourself. And how many times have you read through the scripture and read, God hates, this is an abomination, and have gone over it as if like, oh, it's an abomination. You know, oh, it's a volcano. Oh, it's a disaster. No, we just keep reading as if it doesn't have an impact. Think of the things that would be an abomination to you and go, wow, that's significant, and then go and see what God says is an abomination.
0: You know, I think um, as I wrap up my part of this, another question that it's worth considering in terms of not helping promote ungodliness and evil is um, what are the ways that we might be maybe even unwittingly involved in doing that? You know, I, um, my wife and I watch a few television programs that we think are pretty close to giving us an accurate analysis of things. And even with that, we see these TV commercials where people are being solicited to give their money for what appear to be, you know, good and righteous causes. Uh, I remember some years ago, um, I forgot which TV ministry it was. And if I remember, I wouldn't say it, but you know, a lot of, a lot of them do this. Well, you know, we, we support this orphanage over and wherever, you know, some, Third world, uh, depressed economically, place, and you know, and, th- and then follows you know videos of starving children and this beat up, ramshackle building where supposedly they all live. Somebody had done some research and found that whoever this particular TV ministry person was, they had flown into this place, got off the airplane, had a few pictures made with these poor down and out people, got up back on their plane and left. And most, all of the money was going to someplace other than what people thought they were giving it to. Right. So I I think people need to be very cautious and be wise. This is this is as we're reading I'm reading Revelation thirteen right now, and it's you know, this calls for discernment. You know, recognize that again Satan is a liar and almost at every turn you're being you're being asked and solicited to believe things and in some cases financially support things that in reality are evil.
1: Right. I think a good rule of thumb is to think biblically and support those ministries and churches that are enabling people to get the truth from the pulpit, from the studies that happen, but then act locally. I mean, instead of sending your money to help people who are hungry someplace else, if you want to help people that are hungry, help people that are hungry that are close by and then share the word of God with them. But we need to have biblical discernment and realize that we're too not live by bread alone, not by the things that fill our tummies, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that even means the ones that other people will criticize you for if you believe it.
0: And just a final exhortation from me, don't try to be holier than God. He doesn't need you to do that.
1: And it's an impossibility in any case. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us. I'd love to hear from you. Out of the Question podcast at gmail.com is the way to get a hold of us. And we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.